Welcome to the 150th episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, March 4th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First, a team of rivals. Johnson & Johnson and Merck are teaming up to manufacture J&J's COVID-19 vaccine. We look at the partnership between competitors that's being compared to industry's efforts during World War II. Next, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the World Health Organization declaring the COVID-19 crisis a pandemic. We'll talk to our stat colleague, Andrew Joseph, about what to expect in the weeks and months to come. Finally, Dr. Ashish Jha, Dean of Brown University's School of Public Health, joins us to answer an increasingly common question. Is it okay to feel optimistic about COVID-19? But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi. I'm Angus McCauley from STAT. I'm here with Chris Banco, the CEO of Conexa, a software company that powers patient-centric research. Chris, why do you think that digital biomarkers haven't been more widely adopted? Is it the regulators or is it the biopharma industry? Thanks, Angus. There's no question that the FDA is encouraging technology innovation and that they believe the evidence that digital biomarkers will provide researchers faster and better answers. The problem is that pharma can be a cautious industry. However, we can learn from the history of change management that was required for the adoption of molecular imaging and fluid biomarkers. But we can't let a fear of change hold us back from innovation that can save lives. For more information on Conexa, visit ConexaHealth.com. That's K-O-N-E-K-S-A Health.com. I'm pleased to announce today, as a consequence of the stepped-up process, that I've ordered and just outlined. This country will have enough vaccine supply, I'll say it again, for every adult in America by the end of May. By the end of May. That's progress. This week, the Biden administration announced that it had brought together two of the world's largest pharma companies, Johnson & Johnson and Merck, in an unlikely partnership to double the output of the J&J COVID-19 vaccine. And with that announcement came the news that the delivery date for J&J's promised 100 million doses to the United States would be moved up by a month from the end of June to the end of May. Notably, we may already have been on a pace to have enough vaccine for every American adult by that point. Pfizer and Moderna are due to deliver enough for 200 million people by then. There are 255 million or so adults in the country, and J&J was likely on a pace to hit 55 million before the beginning of June. But regardless, it was presented as a win, and we'll take as many of those as we can get. The whole American vaccine effort has been compared to how industry came together to win World War II with Vanity Fair even reporting that the architects of Operation Warp Speed referenced the book called Freedom's Forge, How American Business Produced Victory in World War II. I spoke to Arthur Herman, the historian who wrote that book, and we'll play a few excerpts from my conversation with him. Here's what he thinks about the comparison between today's vaccine effort and companies banding together in World War II. The parallels run in many ways, but this one is particularly, I think, important because it gets to the heart about what business competition is like in the world of the pharmaceuticals. Because the real value, the value in these companies is in their patents and in their IP, their intellectual property. And so that's why it's really hard to get competitors to share information and data because, you know, you could be giving away the crown jewels. But in the face of a national crisis, this is what uh, the country's automobile industries learn to do they learned to work together to produce the war material that was necessary 
in order to defeat the Axis and to win the war. And there have long been questions about whether the clear successes of Operation Warp Speed could translate into increased collaboration in other areas of drug development, or if post-pandemic, it's going to be back to more fierce siloed competition within pharmaceuticals. And there have been lessons from World War II on that score as well. The experience of World War II of companies, particularly aerospace companies working together, like Boeing and Grumman, that became the paradigm for not just for developing the arsenal for fighting the Cold War and and with the Soviet Union, but also for the space race. And I think the degree to which you saw those companies being able to cooperate in another major undertaking, the race to the moon, uh, those habits of cooperation, of sharing information and technology uh, were part of the inheritance from the World War II experience. No question about that. But his take on this particular team of rivals? When you see two rival companies like this get together, especially in a highly competitive industry like pharmaceuticals, what you're really seeing is a, uh, a partnership which has been very fortuitous, Merck having the facilities, Johnson & Johnson having the vaccine, and a relationship which is almost certainly very temporary. So what do you guys think? I mean, could this create a collaboration that could lead to a medical version of the space race? Or, you know, are we in a pandemic? And as soon as we're done with that, Merck and J&J and all the other uh, partnerships that have been formed, by the way, I mean, this is not the only one, do they split up and go their separate ways? Well, I think his last point there about how fortuitous it is that Merck happened to have the kind of facilities necessary to produce Johnson & Johnson's vaccine, I think that's an important sticking point, that making complicated drugs and vaccines is different from retrofitting an auto plant to make tanks or, you know, the other things from manufacturing that we've seen with physical wartime things. I think, Meg, you know, those other partnerships you mentioned where other companies have stepped in to help Pfizer and BioNTech, they have been more limited to the process of putting vaccine into vials and finishing it and and kind of capping off, which is a very necessary step in the manufacturing process, but it isn't the actual manufacturing of the drug. And that's not because, you know, they're they're greedy or, or they don't want to help out a rival. It's because these processes are so specialized that the the stuff you need to do to make an mRNA vaccine is not just equipment lying around at the average pharmaceutical company. And so in terms of there being Um, you know, deep collaboration in the future, even now where the companies have the will to do it, in many cases, they don't actually have the capacity to do it at the depth that we might like. And so then I guess the question is, moving forward, will they still have the will? You know, and it's also interesting to think about the role of government here and, you know, a point, Damien, that you made before we started recording about the idea of what would be medicine's space race. Okay, we just went through, obviously, this this massive vaccine development effort, which has been tremendously successful. Other diseases are urgent. Alzheimer's disease, cancer, and Joe Biden is the guy who who started the cancer moonshot. Um, could there be lessons from Operation Warp Speed and World War II and the space race for Alzheimer's disease or, or cancer or other disease areas? Obviously, when you're not in a pandemic, 
commercial considerations do come into play more. But at the same time, look at Pfizer and Moderna making a collective $30 billion plus from their vaccine this year. There are ways to, to accelerate these things with government help um, and, and still allow the companies to make money. I mean, I think there's always going to be collaboration within the industry. I mean, look, we see that every day. We write about stories where companies collaborate on on drugs. And, and that's really kind of around the intellectual or the sort of the brain power aspect of it. I feel like we're not going to see these kinds of partnerships extend to the diseases that you mentioned, Meg, you know, Alzheimer's, cancer, maybe in the way that we're seeing it with COVID, just because to me, it seems like the COVID stuff it's really about the supply. It's really about the capacity, you know, the need to to ramp up manufacturing at such a high level that one company can't do it all on its own. And that's where everyone needs to pitch in. Um, but when it comes to cancer and all, even Alzheimer's, which, you know, a horrible, intractable disease, um, the competition there, I think, you know, that's where companies are not going to want to necessarily collaborate. They're going to want to compete against each other. Next week, March 11th to be exact, marks the one-year anniversary of the World Health Organization declaring the rapidly spreading coronavirus outbreak to be a global pandemic. Yeah, so for some perspective, I look back at the story that our colleague Helen Branswell wrote about that WHO declaration. You know, at that time, 114 countries had reported a total of 118,000 cases of COVID-19. Nearly 4,300 people had died. You know, in the story, Helen quotes the director general of the WHO saying, we expect to see the number of cases, the number of deaths, and the number of affected countries climb even higher. You know, he was certainly right about that, sadly. And like it or not, Adam does not like it, but I do. There will be a lot of discussion, reflection, and media reporting next week focused on this March 11th anniversary. Everyone has a this-is-what-I-was-doing-one-year-ago story to tell. And we're not immune to that here at The Read Out Loud. Although, Adam, for you and many people in the biotech world, the COVID-19 pandemic actually got very personal one year ago this week. Yeah, Meg. So my uh, my this is what I was doing one year ago story is that I was attending uh, the Cowan conference. And as we recall that at that conference, there was uh, a presentation by the Biogen team. And, you know, a few days after that meeting, we all we were all notified by Cowan that indeed someone from the Biogen team had been infected and we all needed to, to quarantine. Yeah, I remember that happening to you, Adam, and and it really becoming real to me that you know somebody like you, who I know really well, was was going through this. Um, and for me, going to the pharmacy and just like looking at you know looking around and being like, we're all standing really close together. <laughs> and it was around this time, you know. Do you guys remember? It was like, don't touch your face. I just remember being like, don't touch uh, yes. your face. And yes, not touching your face was a huge thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and. Uh, and so it, this is the time when it just really started becoming so real. But I think we all could not have realized how long it would be going on. We thought if we were coming home, which seemed inconceivable in itself at that time, that we'd be heading back in a few weeks, a month, two months. And it's been a year. Reaching the one year point of the COVID pandemic is also an opportunity to envision the future of the coronavirus. With vaccinations ramping higher and the number of infections falling, it feels very much like the U.S. could be finally seeing the end of the crisis phase. Although CDC Director Rochelle Walensky has been warning that those case declines have stalled 
for the last weeks. So what happens next? This week, our stat colleagues Andrew Joseph and Helen Branswell spoke to infectious disease experts and public health officials to draw a picture of what the short-term, middle-term, and long-term future of the coronavirus might look like. And Drew joins us today to talk about that story. Welcome back to the podcast, Drew. Thanks so much. So Drew, we'll get into the specifics in a moment, but uh, based on your conversations with these experts, what is going to define the end of the pandemic? Like, will we know when this happens? So I think most people are thinking about the end of of this phase, which doesn't really have a name. It's the pandemic phase or the emergency or the crisis or whatever, you know, whatever you prefer. And I think unlike, you know, say last March when everyone sort of had these moments when there was this dawning realization that their world was about to change, like it won't have the end won't be like that, that sudden realization. It'll be much more gradual. And there's not even like a one way to define it. You know, some people think it'll be like when deaths below, fall below a certain threshold or um, when hospitals don't face a crunch. Um, but in terms of people's lives, it'll be really much more gradual. Just, you know, there will be fewer people getting sick, fewer people dying, um, and just activities in general will become safer and safer. So it, it's going to be kind of like a, yeah, sort of a, a slower petering out of things. So a lot of people are looking forward to a summer with more freedom and less worry about the coronavirus. Do you think, you know, according to your your interviews, is that going to happen? I think most experts that we spoke to think the summer will um, look pretty good. I mean, and what that means will vary depending on who you talk to. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is there does seem to be a seasonal factor with this virus um, and respiratory viruses just generally um, transmit less well in the summer. Um, there's also just going to be a lot of population immunity in the U.S. Um, we have had a lot of people who've been infected w- um, with COVID who presumably have some immunity. And then obviously just there's going to be a lot more vaccine um, population immunity as well. So because of all those things, some experts sort of envision like the virus will still be there, but it will be circulating at low levels. And what it might look like is not just like widespread community transmission, which is what we've been experiencing for the past year, but maybe sort of these sporadic outbreaks that can kind of be pounced on by public health and and chains of transmission can be severed. Um, so I think people are looking forward to a better summer. That might not mean you'll be in a, you know, a packed concert hall, although that's kind of really depends where you are. Some states might allow that. But, you know, in terms of like outdoor activity with a bunch of other vaccinated people, I think a lot of experts are envisioning a pretty good summer. So for this story, you interviewed Michael Minna, the Harvard University epidemiologist, and he seems particularly worried about the potential for a setback in the fall. What's his reasoning? A lot of experts think there could be some sort of fall resurgence. And what no one knows for sure is whether there's a resurgence of um, just sort of mild infections or asymptomatic infections or a resurgence of severe disease. And a lot of that depends on, A, not only how uh, widespread vaccinations are at that point, um, but it's also a matter of making sure that vaccines can continue to protect against severe disease, which is what the clinical trials have shown they're really good at. But there's a few reasons why experts say you know, they're not predicting this necessarily, but they say it's it's possible that disease could come back, uh, you know, either in the fall or in future waves of the in the virus. And that's either because the virus keeps evolving. And so vaccines kind of lose some of that ability to protect against severe disease, which some people don't think will happen, I should say. Um, some people think that, like, these vaccines are good enough that um, they'll continue to protect against severe disease and that, um, you know, if there's signs that they might be losing that ability, they can be adapted pretty easily. Um, the second thing is, 
how long these vaccines last. So um, Professor Minna's concern was that maybe the durability of these vaccines, particularly on older people, isn't that long. Um, that's something that's seen in with other immunizations, for example. So there's a fear that if the strength of vaccine starts to sort of wane more quickly in older people, and those are the people most vulnerable to COVID infections, there could be a, uh, an increase in disease and deaths as well. But again, no one's like really making that as a, as a firm prediction. Those are just some of the concerns uh, or like some of the concerns about the possibilities that could happen. So we hear a lot about this concept of herd immunity being the endpoint of the pandemic, a goal that might be reached in the medium term. What did the experts you interviewed say about attaining herd immunity and whether it can be sustainable? Right. So herd immunity is like this, this concept that I think everyone's sort of really been introduced to in the past year. Um, and basically what it means is there are so few susceptible people out there um, that the virus can't really just circulate. It can't find new people to infect. Um, and it's possible that, you know, regions or countries um, hit herd immunity with this virus. But because a COVID-19 infection or a vaccine isn't um, expected to provide, you know, lifelong immunity at blocking infections entirely, um, it's, you know, people will become susceptible again. So herd immunity might be sort of like a fleeting thing. It's called susceptible replenishment if you're an epidemiologist, I guess. So either because, um, first of all, new people are born. Um, second of all, um, immunity might wane uh, after an infection or a vaccine. And third of all, this virus could keep evolving uh, to escape uh, vaccine immunity. So there's a sense that... Um, once we hit, if and when we hit herd immunity, it's not going to be a permanent status. So that's why people think there might need to be vaccine boosters along the way. You know, there's so much unpredictability uh, when it comes to the coronavirus. But nonetheless, you did ask experts to look years ahead into the future. And what do they see for SARS-CoV-2? There's an easy answer is that no one expects it to be eradicated. The only human pathogen that's ever been eradicated is smallpox. And this, because it's a, because of like different features and the fact that it's a respiratory virus and just how widespread it is, that's not going to happen. But between um, like vaccines and the fact that maybe the virus evolves in a way that makes it sort of less, that makes it cause less severe disease. Um, people kind of expect over time that it will become kind of just like any other virus that causes the causes like a cold. Uh, and there are four other human coronaviruses that cause cold. So people kind of expect and, and hope in a way that it will eventually become something like that. Like we'll have so much exposure to the virus either through um, just encountering it or through that's kind of what vaccines may make, that our, our immune systems will really know how to handle this. So even if we encounter it again, like maybe we don't get infected at all, or if we do, it's just like a really mild infection, asymptomatic or, or a cold. Um, I think what people hope doesn't happen is this becomes like the flu. You know, we generally don't spend that much time worrying about the flu, but the flu still kills like tens of thousands of Americans every year and hundreds of thousands of people around the world. So in terms of like the long game with this, it would be quite bad actually if this became another flu. So the hope is that it'll become more like a, a cold causing virus. Lastly, Drew, on a personal level, you know, you've been covering this pandemic since its very beginning. How are you feeling at this time point? What is your capacity for optimism as we move forward? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've always, despite reporting on this now for, I guess, into month 14, like, I've always kind of struggled to know what was going to happen. And just, you know, and experts rely on experts, what they're saying, what could happen, gaming it out. I mean, so I do feel um, optimistic. My parents got their second dose yesterday, so I need to call them and see how they're feeling right now. Um 
and you know, I, I, hopefully I'll get mine in a couple months. And so that's, that's exciting. But like, I, I think there's going to be a long tail to this, um, you know, and, and hopefully it is just a matter of like, there's fewer people getting really sick and dying because of vaccines and, um, and we can kind of get, you know, the virus will still be around, but hopefully like the, the impact will be much, much less. So I don't, I'm not, I, I just, I, I hesitate to make any predictions, but maybe I'm just trying to grab onto whatever optimism is available. Understandably. Drew, thanks again for your time. Thanks so much. I look forward to seeing you in the office again, Drew. I know. One day, one day. Way back in October, when we had no available vaccines and very little data on whether any of them would actually work, Dr. Ashish Jha, Dean of Brown University School of Public Health, came on this podcast to share a little bit of optimism. If everyone sticks to public health guidelines, he said, summer 2021 would be infinitely better than summer 2020. Now that the winter is finally starting to thaw, we invited Dr. Jha back to check in on that prediction and get an expert's take on whether it's okay to feel a pinch of optimism. Dr. Jha, welcome back to the podcast. Meg, thank you for having me back. I'm excited to be back. So Dr. Jha, before we get started, um... What was your one year ago moment? So March 4th, 2020, exactly a year ago from this uh, recording, uh, I was on an airplane flying back from London to come back to Boston. Uh, I'd been in the UK for a couple of weeks, you know, and I was actually planning uh, a trip to Australia about four days later. Wow. So I arrived on the 4th thinking that on the 8th, I would be getting on an airplane and going to Australia. I never did. <laughs> in 2019, I flew a little over 200,000 miles. Like I was on the plane every single week. I have not gotten on an airplane since March 4th, 2020. So let's get to this impending summer. Um, how are things looking from your perspective now that the weather is starting to get a little warmer and, and the dynamics seem to be changing? Can I say that like, I remember feeling pretty optimistic when I was here in October. Can I say my optimism has only grown? Yes, you absolutely can say that. <laughs> like, I don't feel a pinch of optimism. I feel a whole bucket of optimism. The key is to not overdo it. So, you know, people are like, is this summer going to look like the summer of 2019? And the answer is it'll look a little different. But it's going to be a lot closer to the summer of 2019 than the summer of 2020. And I have been feeling that way for a while. But certainly in the last couple of months have really started feeling like uh, it's hard to see how it isn't. There are a couple of threats to my optimism, but the way I look at it is a majority of Americans will be vaccinated. Certainly anybody who wants a vaccine can get vaccinated by May, June at the latest. And, and that means low infection numbers, high degree of protection, uh, and things looking reasonably good over the summer. Uh, I think one has to be really optimistic about the summer. So while the toll of the pandemic has undoubtedly improved in the U.S. since January, the number of new COVID cases does appear to have plateaued in the last week or so. You know, as we mentioned earlier in the show, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky has warned that could be a really bad sign. Um, and then, of course, we have states like Texas saying they're fully reopening next week, multiple states lifting their mask mandates. What do you think of the trend we're on now and um, how much does that threaten our, our near-term progress. A couple of things about this moment. 
infection numbers have come down a lot. And so it is very tempting to do what Texas is doing. I think what Texas is doing is irresponsible. And I don't think that they need to wait like three months. I think they can do what they're doing, some version of it. I don't know if I'd go to 100% opening, uh, probably in like six to eight weeks. So why do I pick that time period? And might be even sooner. Uh, the number one thing right now that we need to be doing is vaccinating all high-risk people. I think everybody who's high-risk, older people, people with chronic diseases, should be getting vaccines into arms. I suspect, given how much vaccine availability we have, that we'll be able to do that by early, mid-April. At which point, if you open up more, you're going to have a good amount of population immunity. Your high-risk people will be protected. It's just going to be meaningfully safer. Um, and I am frustrated that states are not doing that. You know, I do agree with Dr. Rochelle Walensky that this could be the beginning of a new surge in cases. Um, I'm hopeful that it won't be. And, and it's not just random hope. It's also like we have a lot of population immunity and we are vaccinating very, very quickly. And so when people say, well, nationally, we're at the same numbers as the height of the surge of the summer last year, that's true, but in a very different situation where you know, maybe a third or half of our elderly people in America are now vaccinated. And that number is going to get much, much better over the next month. So we're in a very different place. And we're in a much, much better place than we've been at any point in the pandemic. So while this is happening, the federal government has committed to spending some $250 million on COVID-19 ad campaigns, much of which are focused on convincing people to get vaccinated. I was curious, what do you think of the the public outreach that you've seen so far? And then what advice might you have for all the creative directors who are working on this project to to convince people to to go for this? To me, there are a couple of issues that are worth, and again, I'm obviously like not a creative director and, and I'm not gonna make the make the commercials, but it seems to me like the key issues are one is you have to give people a reason to get vaccinated. And the single biggest reason to get vaccinated is you can basically begin to get your life back. You can see friends, you can hug people, you can hang out with people. The things you have not been able to do, you can begin to do. Uh, second is that when you get vaccinated, it has an impact on your whole community. So it's not, you're not just helping yourself. You really are helping everybody else as well. Because I think at this point, there's reasonably good evidence that these vaccines are going to lower transmission. And so it's not just about protecting you. And I, I think the other part is on the issue of safety, which is what I think still holds some people back. It's about seeing people they trust get vaccinated and do well. And that is going to make much more the case than me standing up and saying the safety profile looks really good. Like people actually want to see people they trust get vaccinated. This is actually something that really upset me a couple of days ago when I found out that President Trump had gotten secretly vaccinated before he left office. And I just thought, what a massive missed opportunity uh, for his followers. A lot of skepticism is among conservative white Republicans who love President Trump. And he could have made such a big difference for them, for his followers, by getting vaccinated in public. I have to say, I just don't understand why he didn't. He, you know, he loves taking credit for the vaccines. He should have gotten vaccinated in public. It would have made this big difference for his followers. This is really disappointing. So the U.S. is on pace to have enough vaccine doses for its entire population and then some in the coming months. But we know this pandemic won't actually be under control until the same is true for the entire planet. So what do you make of the effort to get vaccine doses to low and middle income countries? 
I think the effort to get vaccine doses to low and middle income countries has been really disappointing. Um, it's not going well. One is we start with like the Trump administration's approach of like just not even participating in a global effort. That was atrocious. But it actually sets up a problem, which is so the Biden team comes in four billion dollars for COVAX. We rejoin WHO. And it's it's very tempting because it's so much better than what the Trump administration did. It's very tempting for the Biden administration to look at what they're doing and think we're so much better. This is great. And my take is it's great compared to the Trump administration, but that's the wrong bar. And it may not be good enough for the moment we are in. Because COVAX will have plenty of money. That's not the problem. The problem is all the vaccines have been essentially bought up by the wealthy countries. And the number of vaccine doses available to low and middle income countries is very low. So that's a huge problem. There are two countries that are really taking an aggressive approach of giving out vaccines to others before they vaccinate their own populations. And those are Russia and China. Maybe you look at that and say they are the most two most generous, selfless countries in the world. Possible. Or they may have an alternative view of what these vaccines are going to do and from a diplomacy and, and, and soft power point of view. I really think I, I love how much we've ramped up production of vaccines in the United States. I think this is the moment where and maybe not, and maybe President Biden wouldn't do it now, but certainly in the next few weeks. We should start planning on what happens once we get into May and have plenty of vaccines of shipping them out. Um, we need to be thinking about how do we ramp up production beyond what we've done with the Merck uh, tie up. Uh, we need a very aggressive production strategy that goes well beyond the needs of the American people. Uh, and, and America is the right country to lead that global effort. Last time you were on the podcast, we talked about what it's been like for you to become, you know, kind of something of a pandemic celebrity. Um, you've had now months and months of that experience. And so we're wondering if you're looking forward to the day that COVID-19 isn't headline news every day. You know, will part of you miss the glamour of being a Twitter famous celebrity? Uh, no. Um, like, <laughs> no. So first of all, uh, I look forward to COVID-19 not being the headline because it would be nice not to be living in an out-of-control pandemic, um, right? Like the the sheer benefits of like just going and visiting friends and all of that way outstrips like getting, you know, extra retweets on tweets that I have about horrible pandemic statistics. Uh, like that's not a close call. The pandemic has like so distorted all the work we do. All most of us spend our time thinking about is the pandemic and its impact on X. There's a lot of really important public health work that needs to be done that has gotten sidelined over the last year. And I am super excited to be able to like create some mental space and time to start working on those other issues. Dr. Jot, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me back. So that does it, not just for another episode of The Read Out Loud, but the 150th episode. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney, who produced this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you think we should do 150 more episodes of this podcast. You can do all of that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. 
And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.